Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Four, three, two, one. I told you before to be careful where you put your legs. I was only trying to be helpful. I could help myself. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? Come on! Come on! For seven decades, Michael Caine has been among the world's most renowned and recognisable actors. It was just what I needed, a one-inch god with a two-inch penis. The star of classics like Zulu, The Man Who Will Be King and The Cider House Rules. It's a miracle no one was killed. But also films that brought his career to the brink of complete implosion. I made a mistake. Somehow, he has always found a way back. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. In this epic podcast series, we will watch and review every Michael Caine movie, from the greatest hits... You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! ...to the incredible misses. You've failed to maintain your weapon, son. And take a deep dive into the life and work of one of the world's most recognisable film stars. His name is Michael Caine, and no one will forget his name. To understand how he is made... The Mark of Cain. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. For God's sake, come in! Hello and welcome to The Mark of Cain, our deep and decadent dive into the movies of Michael Cain, where we're watching every single flick to get a sense of what makes this actor more than an actor, but an icon for all things good, bad and occasionally ugly in film. I'm joined as always by Stephen Black, the capo di tutti capi of the Mallow News Twitter hypermarket. I thought that was kind of appropriate for uh, today's movie. Godfather. I, I really, yeah, I, once again, you're a master of accents. <laughs> I, was trying, I was transported to the Amalfi Coast. I'd say you're smell, a I can, I, I can smell the, the, the suntan lotion. You're the, saying you're the, all your... I can, the pasta, fresh pasta. Oh, the, 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 the briny air. The Chianti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All you can smell now is stale, stale octopus, or maybe uh, the waftings of a of a mallow chipper. I, I, I mean, let's say it's, it's a it's, that's a particularly beautiful uh, bouquet to have wafting through anyone's nostrils. True, it is true. And just one quick word for the week that's in it. Um, just a quick word of of, of just to remember Charlie Watts. Um, who, of course, a pair of us would. Love and adore is a member of the Rolling Stones, but also he's he has a cane connection. He does indeed, yeah. He's involved with uh, Saucy Rump uh, Blue Ice, which was uh, released in 1992, starring Kane and Sean Young, um, a movie which we'd obviously eventually uh, get to, <laughs> which I, I believe contains a, 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 a sexual scene between uh, between Kane and Sean Young, which made him quite uncomfortable. But again, we'll get we'll get back to that. But yeah, um, Charlie Watts providing the music for it. Yeah. Yeah, he he was involved in a bit a bit of mu- a movie production and bits and pieces like that. I think down you know in around that eighties kind of early nineties time, um. But yeah, yeah, he did the music. So um, and he's in he, it. He's in, he's in it as the band yeah. in, in uh in uh Harry the Michael Caine's character because of course it's Harry because at, at that time in his life it's can you call me something that was previously called the movie so I can remember that I'm. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so Charlie Watts is in there. So we'll uh, when we get to Blue Ice in many 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 weeks time we can uh, we can just pause and pause and nod and and reflect on the great great charlie watts 
Yeah. So listen, we're kind of into the uh, what would be considered primo cane now today. Well, it's it's uh, it's a breath of fresh air. Mm. Uh, like if you were living next to an open sewer and they for for <laughs> for, for a while, and all of a sudden the council came along and they cleared it up, and you go out in the morning and instead of you know, you know the the the, the kind of heavy funk of deadfall, the mages. Uh, the, the wrong box fitting your nostrils you get ah this is this is what it should smell like out here you know fresh mm. yeah fresh good, good air mm. entertaining mm. i think i want to watch more of this rather than clicking onto the little icon to see how long, how long is left in this yeah yeah uh, this is the first movie this is the first movie in, in a few podcasts now where i haven't obsessively been looking at the runtime kind of going on jeez there's so much more of this is left this really bangs along yeah like it like it should yeah, like a normal movie. What a cape, what a flick. Right, this is Swinging London, rendered properly, in my opinion, with all the swagger and the sharp, cool one-liners. Some classic cane, shouting, finger-pointing, minis, fiats, mafia, Noel Coward, famous tunes, and a good right hook and misogyny as well, just to throw you back from time to time. This is the movie that, well, I don't know, did it save Michael Caine's career? We'll talk about that maybe. But this is The Italian Job. Go! You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. We are about to do a job in uh, Italy. It's a very difficult job, and the only way to get through it is we all work together as a team. And that means you do everything I say. Like you said, it reminded me watching this after the horror of the last few, what a good movie actually looks and feels like. It was just like, <laughs> I didn't even, realize. the only time I actually checked, like you were saying there, like the only time I checked the time was a bit about uh, 20 minutes to go. And I realized, oh shit, there's only 20 minutes to go. It's grand like, it's a proper normal movie. Grant. Yep, it's a proper normal movie, entertaining movie. Um, again, doesn't overstay its welcome. Gets the job done. Ticks all the boxes. Yeah. Again, it's been a while since we've seen anything like that from him, so it's it's good to be reminded of it that we're doing this for a reason other than you know general sadomasochism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because God knows we'll have plenty more um, of the thrashing of the cat nine tails on our eyes in the next in the next decade to come. Did it start like? Do you know what the question that kept coming to mind with me? And this what like. Sometimes doing these movies, it's nearly easier to do the crap ones, just watching them because it's, they're just so, there's just more to talk about in ways. But what got, what, what interested me in this one was like, okay, where, where is he at? Kind of the where is he at bit got me because I don't know if this saved his career really, because I mean, it didn't exactly explode in America or anything, but like in terms of the quality of the work he was doing, the Italian job is definitely like 10, 20 steps way ahead of what he had done 
in the previous 12 months, 18 months. But, like, is it too much to say? What did you think? Like, did it, was it, is it too much to say the Italian job saved his, saved his career? Like if you're looking at it from a kind of a cold light of day from a box office perspective, it like it it it, it cost around three million, and it took mm. in it has taken in over one hundred and thirteen million, something close to that. So I mean, it was a box office success. It didn't really take off in the states. Apparently, the dialogue was too uh, British for them to understand, and I guess the ending probably didn't kind of score well from an audience perspective as well. They like closure and films like films like this, uh, but Europe is a huge smash. So. Maybe not didn't save his career in America or didn't improve his standing in America. But yeah. again, it's I suppose I have to take, about, take into account here, he, he's not been in the business at this level for that long. It's just that he's managed yeah. to squander an awful lot of uh, goodwill over a very yeah. short period of time. I think that's it. I think that's it. Like, I mean, he's, he's, he's the nailed on biggest star in the UK now. But to be fair, the late 60s was a pretty, not a great time for UK cinema. And actually, Bob Evans of Paramount, who made the movie, made made the point that for whatever reason, 1969, 1970, were two quite depressed years for American cinema in terms of box office returns as well. Like Butch and Sundance basically dominated 69 uh, in the States. But listen, can I, I just want to put this in the back of your head for later on, right? Just have a bit of, because you're good at this stuff, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of, where does Kane, like he's not a list. Okay, like we know he's a big star in the UK, but in America, right? He's not A-list. He's kind of somewhere in the middle, I think, now. Or he's recognized, but he's not he's not a superstar actor. Like Robert Redford was, was the American choice for the for the Italian job. But Kane, the, the, the thing was written for Kane, really, with Kane in mind. But so just to the back of your head, right? Like if like I'll ask you later on, but like where is he? Like where is he in that table of American stars, right? Like is he where is he? But I'm not asking you to answer no, just well, no, no, no. I'll answer, I'll answer it. No, it's. It, I think huh. he's been seen there as a character actor. I would imagine he's yeah. not a leading man. If you look at the like, so if you put, if like, if you put a picture of Robert or uh, Robert Redford uh, in the late sixties and a picture of Michael Caine next to each other, I yeah. mean, there's not much really comparison there. To be no. honest with you, <laughs> you not, know, no, no, no. Uh, so you know, you you see what the standard is there in terms of in terms of handsome. It actually looks like a before and after, uh, particularly. <laughs> rough uh few years on the sauce combined with it the occasional tumble down a hill made out of gravel and glass you know <laughs> it would have been fun actually to swap them wouldn't it to have um, to have Kane and Butch and Sundance as Robert Redford in the Italian job yeah I'm not going to throw in an impression here but the thoughts of uh McCain <laughs> trying to shoehorn his uh, almost unpassable uh, American accent into that would it would have been a lot funnier but definitely not as good a film no you're not supposed to blow the goddamn doors off no it doesn't doesn't quite doesn't quite translate the next time you say we should go someplace like Bolivia we, we, sh- we should go someplace like Bolivia and that was again that was that's Michael Caine um, that's uh, not bad and even and for like Rob, we don't have a visual here but I can I, I can see Stephen here, and he actually even did finger pointing, which was very keen. You 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 immerse your you immerse yourself in the role. I spent I the last five days immersing myself in the role, like gravy, just you know marinating and <laughs> marinating in the both the aspects of Michael Caine and the aspects of Butch and our Sundance. I can't remember which character was which. That could, could quite easily have been I, Paul Newman's character. I haven't seen the movie in years. <laughs> Same. The Italian, right? You made an interesting thing though about that Butch Sundance thing. Okay. Um, Loads of people know the Italian job. I'm going to go through the plot, by the way. This is my way of getting to the plot. But I'm not so sure 
that a lot of people at, of a certain generation have actually watched it. They're aware of it, but they haven't watched it. So for people who have watched the Italian job and they're going, oh my God, they're not going to shoot, going to shoot the whole plot. My defense is, I think, that there's a share of people out there who haven't actually seen the movie, but they're aware of the minis and they're aware of Michael Caine. So that's my defense on this one. And also the, the plot isn't that complicated. No. Uh, it's the most straightforward of any of the movies that we've, we've actually re we've reviewed so far. I mean, the last 40 minutes is just the heist. It's, it is essentially a very long car chase. Yeah, pretty much. And it's fab. It's fab. So I get through this and we can, and we can get back to the, the, the business of the thing. So, Starts out with this guy who's called Beckerman, who's driving this improbably cool Lamborghini. Apparently, it was like a this particular Lamborghini he was driving had just literally rolled out of the gar rolled out of the factories. It was it was the coolest thing in the world. So he's driving along these hairpin bends in the Alps with Matt with a Matt Monroe tune playing in the background, and the next thing he gets killed in a car crash orchestrated by the mob. At the same time, Kane's character Charlie Croker. Uh, is getting out of prison. He's met by his girlfriend, Lorna, in a car stolen from the Pakistani ambassador and actually was the car for the actual Pakistani ambassador, the, the car that picks him up outside. And he's taken to a hotel um, where there's a room full of girls waiting and a message to visit another room in the hotel later on. So later on, when he staggers out of his, out, out, out of his uh, post-parole party, uh, he goes to the other room where he meets Beckerman's widow and he helps her through her grief uh, through sex. Uh, and then he gets a tape from the widow of this plan of Beckerman's to rob four million, is it dollars or pounds? I can't remember. Is it four million dollars. Four million dollars, right, of gold uh, from a security van that will be going through Turin on a particular day. So he tried to engage the interest of uh, Mr. Bridger, who's played by Noel Coward. He's basically the main man back in the prison. Uh, Kane's character, Croker, actually breaks back into the prison and accosts Mr. Bridger in the toilet. It's a great scene. Um, gives him the plans. Anyway, back at his place, back at Croker's place in Portobello, where he's having more group sex, where his girlfriend catches him, forgives him. Then the next thing, Bridger's guys arrive and they give him a beating for, you know, breaking into the toilet and upsetting your men's routines. Uh, but Bridger is interested when he reads about the gold coming in from China to build a Fiat factory uh, in China. So it's a chance to beat the common market, put one over on the continentals, all this sort of stuff. So he he foots the bill basically for the whole thing. So the training with the minis and all is disastrous. You get the, you know, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors offline. Uh, the plan is essentially to disrupt the computerized traffic system in Turin. So they're going to use the expertise of a character, Professor Peach, who's played by Benny Hill, uh, who has a weakness for, let's say, heavy set women. Um, they're going to basically jumble the jumble the traffic lights so it causes a traffic jam, trap the van carrying the gold and make off with the gold. So they land in Italy. Straight away, the mafia intercept them, destroy Croker's car, Kane's car. And they're about to kill them all uh, when Kane just warns them that every Italian in England will be victimized by Mr. Bridger if they do. And also, by the way, we've got a whole movie here, so don't kill me off yet. Um, so Peach is then smuggled in. They screw up the computer system for the following day. Traffic cameras are scrambled. Traffic lights, I should say, sorry, are scrambled as well. Um, Peach then gets arrested for molesting a heavy woman and he's, he just disappears out of, the pro, out, out of the film. But they go ahead with the plan. The mafia gets snared off in the traffic jam while following the gold. Uh, so the guys, the lads get the gold, the English guys get the gold and make their getaway in the famous minis, fantastic stunt driving through Turin and out into the Alps. And they get out of Turin, rendezvous with a bus and then they head off for France across the Alps. But one hairpin too many and the bus takes a jackknife turn and suddenly it's left dangling over the edge for the very famous ending with the gold at one end teetering on the edge and the lads at the other end of the bus trying to save their lives. Uh, 
apparently the ending was conjured up by the producer Michael Dealey on the way to Hollywood to meet Bob Evans and Paramount um, to discuss progress on the film. They didn't have a, they didn't have an ending, so they just said, "Yeah, that'll do, that'll do." But of course, this turned into like one of the most famous endings, probably the most famous ending in a British film ever made. But that's pretty much it. Where do you want to start? Where do you want to start? I want to start with the opening. You got a Matt Monroe. Uh... Yeah, warbler who would have uh, was a, from uh, from Russia with love. He did the th- he did the, he sang the theme tune for that. So obviously, again, this is my attempt to reach out to our younger listeners. All you know, <laughs> from Russia with love stands. Love the early bands. <laughs> like granddad, 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 what's what's a James Bond? Questi giorni quando vieni il bel sole. It reminded me a little bit of a, again, a little bit like the Deadfall um, team. It actually reminded me a bit of Dusty Springfield for some reason. I don't know why. It's a nice, it's a nice song. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, you want to talk yeah, about nice, your man driving? Nice, uh, driving, lovely. Obviously, you feel, all right, this this looks good. The soundtrack is good. Beautiful. Like, it's a beautiful, beautiful shot. You know, great way of being taken out, but planting a JCB at the end of a tunnel. Doesn't seem that kind of, you know, exact. I'd imagine it's a busy road. Or, and they, this is pre-mobile phones. They just have they killed off at least 15 or 16 other uh, <laughs> dr- drivers between be- before they get to Beckerman. Uh, is the chasm just littered with bodies and wreaths? The lads just have, you know. And just the way, like, this is 69, right? So my understanding of the Mafia, obviously there's the kind of, there'll be mob films throughout the years. And so like, this is, you know, the mob, but you know, the Mafia is an organization in Italy. It's very kind of still kind of covert and under the radar. Like my understanding from covert organizations is that the best way to stay undercover is not all dressing alike. Like, and in this, they're all dressed like fucking undertaker pimps. They're like the Blues Brothers. Like like very thin blues brothers, all and they're all standing on the mountainside, like you know the fuck that bit in the Lion King where uh, where uh, Simba is being crowned, uh, you know, crowned the successor to Mufasa. But yeah, my understanding from our covert organizations, you know, under the radar, that's how you avoid getting picked up by the cops. And imagine that the success in the mafia over the years would have been slightly hamstrung, but for by the fact that all the police had to do is just go out and arrest any dipshit who was wearing a fucking black suit and a black hat. Uh, yeah, it looks like they're about to break into a dance number, actually. Yeah, it's very kind of West Side Story. You kind of expect them to start clicking their fingers. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I thought it, it was, you know, very melodramatic and, uh, uh, yeah, good setting of the scene, yeah. I thought. Uh, yeah. But you never really get any kind of danger from the mafia. You know, like it's, it's not that kind of film. You're not supposed to be kind of worried for the lads' lives or, or at any stage think that the mafia are going to, at any stage, kill any of the people involved. It's just that, that kind of film. And I think that was very conscious as well, because I mean, the, the thing about it was, yeah, you, you could be killing guys off, but you would. It just, in a weird way, it's almost more tragic to see the cars getting destroyed. I mean, there's that scene uh, where uh, Kane is driving the Aston Martin and the mafia intercept them, and you got beautiful, these beautiful cars, and they just tip them all over the side. Again, it was a real thing at that time in the late sixties, early seventies. Cars going down steep cliffs, wasn't it? Just yeah flying down but like just to see these beautiful machines it was almost more affecting than watching the lads get some fella get machine gunned no one gets killed in it like even in the even in the robbery uh in the middle of turin when they were when they were putting that together there was discussions like around well do we use guns would would, would the gangsters have guns um but the experts in inverted commas said no they had had discussions and apparently the uh the weapon du jour at the time 
for for criminals in the UK was your your trusty old pickaxe handle. So they all had pickaxe handles. So they just boxed lads off motorbikes and stuff. But nobody gets, I, as far as I can remember, nobody, anyway. Nobody, no, 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 nobody gets killed. Apart from Beckham, nobody else gets killed. But there, you can't tell me that there, there are no Italian policemen who are walking away from that unscathed. Like they just get fucking knocked unconscious by Listen, a pickaxe handle. You're there, talking long term, long term brain damage. There was, I have no doubt that there was a, a number of heart rending interviews on Sky News Italia in the weeks afterwards from hospital beds with lads with huge amounts of bandages swathed like turbans on top of their heads, um, just recovering, recovering from it and telling us how awful these English people were, you know, coming over. Yeah. But um, So I think that actually yeah. affects the, t- it kind of affects the tension of the movie because there's not really any, there's no really stakes in this, you know, do, will they, will they get away with the robbery or, or won't they? It's not, like Kane said, this is a kid's film. No, it's one of the first kid's films I would have seen that uh, had, you know, intimations of group sex and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, lots of group sex and uh, one of the, the characters uh, having a particular fetish for larger women. Yeah, there was a fair old, like there was, as always, it seems now at this stage watching these 60s films, there's a big whack of misogyny going through the middle of it. You just can't walk away from You can't ignore it. And the Benny Hill character is awful. I mean, you know, the guy, like and you, you listen to fellas who were on the film and they waxed in nostalgically about how funny Benny was on camera and, or, or on, sorry, on set and how, you know, how fun it was to have him around. But he has no place in that film. It was even written, the original script, like Professor Peach that he plays, Instead of being kind of a, a basically a sexual deviant, um, he was a much darker sort of character. But uh, Peter Collinson, the director, didn't want that. So Hill ended up writing a bit for himself. And uh, like you say, uh, it was just kind of basically obsessed with fat women. Yeah, ben, Benny Hill, for, for listeners who don't know Benny Hill, Benny Hill uh, was a popular uh, comedian in the 60s, 70s, and to an extent in the early 80s, oh, he had his own TV yeah, show. And if, you, yeah. and if you heard the his tea, uh, the team tune, the Benny Hill team tune, you, 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 you even had a pop career. like. But it's one of those things, if you were to show a clip of the Benny Hill show to somebody uh, in their teens early 20s they, it would be like looking like an art uh, looking at an artifact from you know looking like it's like looking at a fossil kind of going i appreciate that's a fossil but i can't see in any way how that translates to what it is you, you know i can't look at that i can look at the dinosaur bones but i can't imagine the meat it. you know it's it's yeah. very abstract benny hill was not funny he was funny in terms of he ran around and he chased he chased girls i think yeah. that was basically the the nub of his comedy and he talked yeah. in a funny voice uh, yeah. which was enough back then to actually sustain a career that spanned decades. I yeah. mean, I fucking hate Benny Hill. He's awful in this. Every aspect of his performance is awful, mugging for the cameras, nonsense. The bit where he gets pinched by the cops for uh, for molesting a, a woman on on, a, on their equivalent to the Lewis or what have you, is even sped up yes. for a comic effect. So yeah, yeah her, her voice gets high-pitched and they're, they're, all the characters are moving you know, like in a jerky uh, uh, fast forward type fashion and then arbitrarily slow down as they brought him to the station it's a rare misstep for the film in terms of, of yeah. direction I don't know did did Benny say to Colin said oh, look I know comedy I'm a comedy genius so just uh, my advice is you speed that up people love uh, people love this this is going to be comic gold and it's yeah, it's, it's dog shit it's not it's terrible and i applied your logic to it when i was watching it as in if this guy wasn't here would we miss him yes we need a computer expert but w- apart apart from the scene where he slips into the kind of the the, the traffic hq or whatever the hell and kind of tweaks the, tweaks the computer that's all we need him for 
That's yeah, because when he when he was when the when his character is being set up, and I think it's his sister saying, "Oh no, no, he had to be put away because he wanted to be very good." Though. I have she to is say, not Irene Handel, a classic. Irene Handel is great. She's brilliant as his sister teeing him up. Yeah. It's brilliant. But she's teeing him up. But they're there, and they all have cats in their laps. I thought Annette was a, Annette was a cat, so I thought they were setting him up to be a cat <laughs> fucker, which <laughs> would have been a hell of a lot more interesting. Oh, would you stop? Would you stop? She's there talking thing. about Annette and the lads, the lads, the Camp Freddy. I think you it's a cat. You can't uh, go. You cannot go from criticizing Benny Hill to saying having a guy who was into cats would have been an improvement on Benny Hill. I'm not saying it was an improvement, but I thought that's what they were setting up. It certainly would have been a lot more entertain, uh, entertaining than a guy who just liked large women because that's apparently something that's fucking funny. You For know. You, maybe. Jeez, yeah. gee whiz, but uh, like, yeah, he, he, he has no look, but I mean, yeah, the, the misogyny is true. So, I mean, he comes out of prison straight away, his girlfriend has set up an orgy for him. Can uh, I just say that's the worst present you could ever give out? Imagine to a lad who's been in prison for, for a few years. I mean, it's like, could you not just spread them out over the next few weeks? Because to be honest, <laughs> it's just going to be it's just going to be an explosion within seconds of him getting into the room. You need this, it's going to be de- aspects of dehydration, conditioning. <laughs> All of these things could, could affect performance. And you'd imagine, no, thanks. It's a very thoughtful present, but, you know, just one at a time over the next few weeks, just I, let me get back into the, you know, back into the, the swing of things as it were. I have to say, Kane comes out of the room looking very shaken. He does, yeah. But then heads off to the, but heads heads off like uh, Pat Mustard and now off to do the widow, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Straight away, he's he's back on, he's, he's back on point. And like then, obviously, not even, I'd say maybe 15, 20 minutes later, he's in his, his Portobello bedsit stroke loft apartment, which I did like that little bit of scene Portobello and in, in 68, 69. Um, and he's there in his sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, his sort of, his, his, his emporium of happenings uh, with his various different bits and pieces of um, wavy gravy, psychedelic stuff all around him. And again, he's there with the two or three women when the girlfriend arrives this time. And this is this is the problem. I think I think that girlfriend Lorna, I think she was called. She she could have been a really good character in this, but yeah, kind of not really. You know, nothing was done. Nothing was done with her. Uh, yeah, has a really good scene where she's introduced and she stole. She's set up as you know an interesting character. She's stolen the yeah. Pakistani ambassador's car. And you think right, this is a good. She'd be a good kind of foil for him. You know, their their equals or what have you. But that really kind of dissipates and it doesn't come to anything. And he bundles her off uh, back home to the UK because he's frightened that something bad will happen to her, you know, because the Vatty have gotten yeah. involved. Yeah. Like it's interesting that, you know, Benny Hill and Lorna are gone 40 minutes out from the end of the film. I would yeah. say maybe half 40 minutes, like gone. And you do not, I don't think we see them. No, we don't see them again. We don't see them no. again at all. They're gone. So it's like, because when you think about, it, there's there's no time given to developing any of the casts, any of the, no. the crew, the crew that are involved no. in the heist, past past the three again. But it's not. But I mean, there's like past the two, the fact that the two two of the mini drivers are posh, uh, and one of the lads is called Camp Freddy, and a couple of other guys are semi incompetent. It's you know, you, yeah. you, I would say it's a, I would say it's a weakness, but it's you certainly kind of Kane does an awful lot of the heavy lifting. I suppose this is kind of goes back to. I guess if you're what really constitutes a movie star and a movie star for me is somebody who elevates mediocre or average material to one, one or more levels up, you know, makes the material better by their effort, by the effort they put in and by their presence on screen. And I think this is one of those occasions where Kane actually gets to use that, uses his actual star power to make what would be 
in anyone else's hands, and I think there's credit to the the, the scriptwriter and to the director on this as well. Anyone else's hand, a kind of mediocre standard '60s caper movie. Yeah, totally you know, there's always there's a kind of perfect perfect storm here. You've got a Quincy Jones uh, getting into the top of his game from a scoring perspective. Uh, you've got Kane hungry to actually prove himself in a good movie, which I think we've discussed already. Really helps. His performance mm, when he's actually fucking invested in the material. You've got Collinson, a young young director looking to prove himself, and you've got the scriptwriter as well. His name uh, Troy Troy Kennedy, Troy Kennedy Martin. Troy Kennedy Martin, who also is responsible for one of the greatest uh, uh, Arnie movies of all time, uh, Red Heat. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he wrote Red Heat. So and actually, on, in terms of that hunger point that you make. Troy Kennedy Martin at that point had been a TV writer. So this was his kind yeah. of chance. He wanted to get out of TV. He wanted to yeah. get into movies. So you're right. You're, you've, you've nailed it there now. There's about f- the four, three or four people there, key people are really focused on this and want to nail this film as, 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 as a piece of work. I don't like, I take your point on the developing the characters and stuff. I don't think it's about, I think they're, they're they want to keep the space for Kane. Um, Cause I, I thought I have to, say, I thought it was, you know, it's one of his. It's a great performance, like, and it's it's for me anyway. I don't know what you thought, but like, for me, it's the first time you see finger pointing in the stuff that people impersonate now. The the one liners, the pointing, the really dumb lines delivered brilliantly. There's a brilliant bit at the end when they're when they're scattering to to actually do the robbery, and he says, "One more thing, lads, just remember, they drive on the wrong side of the road," and it's like delivered so well like so well and the boys just go oh jeez and they walk and it's such a terrible it's a terrible line it's a terrible line but he absolutely makes so much out of it you know and it's great and i actually like do you know when you're watching a film especially at home with you know you're not you're not watching it in the cinema and no one's laughing like around yeah. i just it's 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 harder to get a laugh when you're watching a movie on your own and i i have said i he made me laugh a lot in this movie i was actually surprised how comedic he was. Yo, he's How great. He really, was. really, really, really great in this. Now, really delivered the lines well. Kind of imbued him with a good physicality yeah. as well. Um, but I thought again, again, it kind of disappears in the last forty minutes. So like once the lads are in the cars and they're making their getaway, it's like Keane was really gone out of the movie and only yeah. really reappears when the they're, o- the they're over the precipice at the end. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, before we kind of go to the heist. I suppose we should uh, kind of discuss Noel Coward uh, in this. I mean, he's second billion. This is get to, this goes back to your, are there many A-list stars in Britain at the time? When you talk about a lad who made his, his uh, fortune uh, and fame in the 30s and 40s, the answer, of course, clearly is no, there aren't that many yeah. A-list stars. No, Noel Coward is... Uh, God, how would you describe Noel Coward? He was a, he's a playwright and uh, a composer. Oh, he was everything, wasn't he? Like, I mean, yeah, I, think, I, think yeah. this, I think at this distance from Noel Coward's... I mean, he died a couple of years after this film. This is his last movie. I mean, I think we're, we we don't really realize how big and how famous and how well regarded he was. Uh, and it's only now. I mean, there's a certain the, the thing about the toilet scene that I mentioned. Like they're actually in a little cubicle, a pair of just staring at each other. And like, there's something in that that you have Kane, this new star, and you have Coward, this internationally regarded um, institution. Do you think if you oh, if yeah. you stop some some lad in the street of Boise, Idaho in 1969 and ask them, you know, what's your favorite Noel Coward I, song? I uh, let me tell you, let me tell you, ask the right guy here. <laughs> I love his body awake. It's fantastic. Because apparently people in Boise, Idaho have, have New York accents. 
I moved here two years ago, set up a deli. It was a terrible, terrible failure. <laughs> My wife left me. <laughs> well, I think what I'm saying is that for guys putting movies together, okay, for, for people who are putting movies together, I think Noel Carver I think they're called people, people who put movies together, people. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Look, but I think people that are people that would have been aware of Coward's work and where I think he had huge standing. I think he did. I think he did. But like, he, I, he's good in this. He's very, very good in it. Like, he's at a stage where he's, you know, he's forgetting lines and stuff like that. And I liked it. I liked the fact that he had a very special relationship with the director. The director, Peter Collinson, was he grew up in an orphanage. Um, uh, it was some kind of actor's orphanage um, or something. That, um, it was like you know, the, if the his uh, Collinson's parents were artists and musicians, and they just they just weren't able to look after him, so they put him into this particular orphanage. And Noel Coward was was a governor, I think, of this particular institution, and uh, he took he took an interest in Peter Collinson because he he didn't seem he just he just seemed like um, you know a kid who need who needed a, a bit of guidance or whatever. Um, and you know they were very close. And when it came to the Italian job, Coward took the role. And Collinson, I mean, I think it was, I think it was a name that people called Coward in his close circle anyway. But Collinson insisted on everybody on set calling Coward the master, which uh, nobody. Really, this really, this really speaks to a healthy uh, mentor mentee relationship, <laughs> doesn't it? No questions at all. I have no questions in this. This no. also is entirely about or young orphan person in power uh, taking them under their wing. Uh, ref- wants to be called the master. No more questions. This. All above board. It would appear if you if you look at interviews with Peter Collins's family. Peter Collinson died many years ago from cancer. Um, if you look at interviews with his family and all, they speak very very fondly of Noel Coward and of the influence of Noel Coward on Peter Collinson. I, I, I again, no I further questions. No further questions. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but Collinson does a great job, like in terms yes, of just great job, tightness yeah. and the, the pace and everything of it. Um, you mentioned like so Noel Coward's good, like Quincy Jones. Like the music, the music, of course, like self-preservation society isn't called a self-preservation society. The song, it's called it's something not, else. Get uh, it done or yeah. get it on or give me give me this or it's fucking awful. I hate it. I hate <laughs> it. I hate, <laughs> it. I hate it's, it. It's a real kind of jaunty sub-Beatles, kinksy kind of, uh, you know, British on tour, fucking beaches of Marbella vibe. Blech. I I I, I dislike it's just, of, it's just a lot of Cockney rhyming slang listed off. I'm really into it, and Kane told him a lot of Cockney rhyming slang, so he put it like, on the song. Like I would see this something that like this would be a very proto kind of Fast and Furious, you know, but mild and not that fast. And you know, while the Fast and Furious movies are like vroom, nitrous, vroom, family, vroom, Corona, vroom, vroom, you know, sex, girls. This is kind of a bit more, you know. Like to have a song like the Self Preservation Society score a heist, it's just kind of indicative of how genteel the whole the whole chase scene is at the end. I mean, oh, yeah. while the stunt while the stunts are impressive, you're never uh, you're like you know you're never under any impre- uh, illusion that these cars are not going very fast, and there is not a lot of peril. Um, y- yeah, but. Yes, but the actual stunts themselves are brilliant, and there was a lot of peril. Um, do you know what I mean? I mean, even the I mean, there's there's one particular stunt that just blows my mind anytime I see it, and that's the one where they're jump, they're the, the minis go from one building to another across. There's no like it was filmed apparently on the Fiat in the Fiat factory outside Turin, um, and they 
just they they ramped from one from one building to the other. It, it, it is freaking scary. Like Michael Dealy, who was a producer, uh, was asked about uh, was asked about this stunt at one point, and he said, "Yeah, he said, look, <laughs> we didn't know. Like the stunt the stunt guys, Remy Julien, they were they were brilliant, and they had all their." their mathematics done to a T, but he had, he said, honest to God, he had a car ready to go. If something went wrong, he said he was getting out, he was getting on a plane and he was going to deal with it from the UK, whatever the fallout would be if the cars didn't make it to the other building. So like, I mean, you can't, I, I take, I take what you're saying, but like about the feel of it, when you're watching the film, none of it feels dangerous. I'm not watching but, a movie going, oh, I hope the stuntmen are all right. That's, if I'm know, watching a movie, if I'm watching a movie and I'm concerned about like, let me, I'm just going to take myself out of this immersive experience, which cinema is supposed to be. And I'm just going to think, know, God, they must have spent ages cooking that dinner. I God, know. I'd say I the know. caterers were run off their feet. So, <laughs> I know. That's what's I going on in the background. I'm kind of, so many meetings took place in order for this to appear. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I'm watching okay, this car chase. And it takes place at a very genteel pace. Uh, cars hilariously crash off, uh, crash into things, and fucking, and like the whole escape is seen through a traffic jam, which is you know the antithesis of movement. It's static, you know. <laughs> okay. So fair it's great. There's some beautiful shot. There are some beautiful shots. The rap, the ramping scene with the minis is great. The bit where they're going over the roof of the, I think it is the the Fiat factory, is fantastic. It looks great. But again, it's just nice. Sit back. It's not edge your seat stuff. Yeah. By any, no. by any, which is why it's you know like I did like. I really like this movie. I'd watch it again in a heartbeat. Dialogue snappy, acting performances by it's essentially Michael Caine's movie with a with a sprinkling of of Noel Coward, um, yeah. and uh, that's fine. But I mean, looking at it critically, like it, it, like it's the action scenes are very genteel. There are no stakes here. Um, the ending, like I don't know what you think about the ending, but it, it's great that it's iconic and all that. But it's a it's a real fucking cop out. It's a real kind of as you say. What can we do to make this stand out rather than in any way? It's a, la- it's a lazy device. And I applaud this as, as a lazy person kind of go, what's the laziest way I can complete this without having to put in any further effort? They had a bunch of endings apparently teed up. They had four or five endings written. Like one of them was that they had to get away with the gold and arrive at a bank and they would go to lodge the gold and the bank managers would be would turn around his chair and would be the head of the mafia, the, the mafia chief that they were trying to trying to avoid. And uh, or there was another one, I think, where the mafia was just going to take them, take the gold off them, basically. Um, I like the ending, but you see, I like the ending of The Sopranos as well. I like I don't mind stuff ending literally in midair. Scrand. I don't. I, I, I have no problem with that. I, I have no problem with that either as a conceit. But as I say, I think it's just done. As you say, there was a, there was a number of choices. This is the this is they didn't take this for a specific artistic purpose. It wasn't like you know this is the best oh, way yeah. to leave these characters. No, it's not. It's just done out of convenience. I think there uh, was talk. I, I think there was talk of a sequel though. There was talk of like yeah, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have um, they're going to get the gold back and or the mafia are going to get the gold back and they were Corsican mafia I think as well. So they would have been heading back towards. I thought some, that. I thought yeah. that when I saw the uniforms, I said, "That's the uniform of the car." I know that, <laughs> like the Calabrian mafia, do tend to kind of have a more of a of a of a teal uh, suit rather than the traditional black. <laughs> anyway, Kane liked the idea of um, doing a sequel where where you chased uh, the mafia through the French Riviera. Shock horror! He didn't mind the idea yeah. of doing it too. <laughs> <laughs> the French Riviera but it never came to pass. Anyway, Quincy Jones, Celestial Twins. You don't believe this, Quincy Jones. And Michael Caine are born on the same day, which is March 14th, 1933. Uh, 33. Sorry, 33. They claim to have been born in the same hour. Um, 
So, and they didn't know this until they were on the, on the, on the set of the Italian job and they got chatting about it. I think it was near Quincy's birth, someone's birthday or something. It's not that I don't and necessarily believe it. I, I just don't give a shit. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's, Celestial yeah. Twins. It's not like in any way that they kind of go, oh, no, join the Celestial Twins. We could, we have the power to take, we have the, enough cosmic power to take over the world. It's, you know, it's just, uh, oh, that's nice. Uh, what, are the, what other things do we have in common? You know? <laughs> It's 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 my wife's birthday actually on March fourteenth. It's it's how I remember her birthday is when I'm buying McCain's birthday card. Nice, nice <laughs> to have that little trigger to have, you know. To put a too fine point to it, he was discovered in the lounge. Uh, doing what, Miss Peach? To put a too fine point to it. Just another board I have to pick with a movie that I really enjoyed because I really just want to establish myself as a cranky little shit. Uh, I found it hilarious. The, the the there's two instances here where uh, uh, movies are being reviewed. So there's a uh, Beckerman has recorded uh, and in the event of my death, Charlie. Here are all the details of it, and they make no effort to disguise the fact that it's shot like a movie. You know, so it's there. <laughs> They're 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 sweeping shots, you know. There's the sound is perfect. The 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 there you know it just looks like somebody. It looks like a scene from a movie. But the best one is when um they're reviewing the the like again. Jesus Christ, I love this movie. I love this movie, but this is just so fucking shocking. <laughs> so is it Camp Freddy is over in Turin doing a bit of reconnaissance, uh, making sure yeah. that everything uh, kind of everything is uh, is on the level. He's there recording a message to to um bridger and it's being filmed and he's speaking out loud in the middle of the street in the middle of the street about everything to do with the plan just kind of go i'm here in the the, the center of turin and if this goes right you know we'd have to go through it all. at the top of his voice um and it's shot like an alan wicker documentary it's like you just expect him just to have a microphone and say, i'm here in the heart of turin uh, about to undertake a very secret and 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 and, and covert um uh, robbery which and of course again Go back to the back. One of the best ways of keeping things under your hat is just to be quite open about it. People don't never suspect <laughs> thieves who are discussing robberies in plain sight at the top of their voice. Exactly. Exactly. In whites exactly. in panorama voice. Like again, just bear in mind this wasn't shot like you know, you know, on a on a on a, on a mobile phone or a super eight or anything like that. This is basically he's talking, but there's a crew of six people behind the camera there. <laughs> there's a gaffer, there's a DP, there's the there's a director. There's a boom operator because the sound quality is is amazing. All of that goes on. He's got the little lapel right? microphone as well. You, don't, you, know, you get to hear the you know good old Dolby surround or whatever the equipment was at the time. And then he then amazingly and and conveniently as he walks off camera, having you know delivered this co- this very secret and private message at the top of his voice in the heart of the city that they're about to commit the crime in. The, the camera operator zooms in on a shadowy figure who's been standing in plain sight again behind him the whole time pretending to read a newspaper and <laughs> it's a member of the mafia again no, no. 
It's not just sorry to cut across you. It's know, the it's head. Just, it's the head. It's the head of the mafia. <laughs> it's standing there reading the newspaper three feet from him as he explains the entire plan. Yeah. Bullshit. Fucking bullshit. <laughs> it's brilliant. And he walks past the camera and just pauses long enough for them to get a nice screen grab of him. So, you know, no, he just really unbuttons unbutt- unbutt- his shirt and just reads a t-shirt that says Mafia Goon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a, a literal. There's about three or four missteps, and that's that's probably misstep number four in the movie. All right. Um, look, do you know what? As Irish people, it's hard to get past Kilmaine in jail. The fact that yes, we got out to the late late show section of, the, of this podcast. Yeah, so Italian Italian job. I believe you. I believe you visited Ireland, didn't you? You had a great time, didn't you? You love Ireland, don't you? Oh, I did. Yeah, I uh, got, got some Irish blood here myself. Mainly yeah. for tax reasons, but um, you Maybe know, for tax great. reasons, yeah, it was great, it was great to be here. Kilmainham Jail is for anyone for anyone who's not aware, it is an old jail uh, near the centre of Dublin. It would have been very much connected to Irish revolutionaries and, and the Irish revolutionary period, nineteen sixteen rising. The leaders were taken there and 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 executed by by British forces and so on. So it's got huge resonance. In Ireland, and you know what? I mean, this film was shot in 1968, and I'd be pretty sure that there was a bit of resonance, a fair bit of resonance. We're only two years on from the 15th anniversary of the Easter Rising, and a British film crew come to Kilmaine and Jail to to shoot the prison scenes there. So that's pretty, like maybe I'm get maybe this is just my interest in history you now kind of overtaking me here, but that's it's pretty pretty significant stuff. Like I'd say, knowing the Irish, knowing the Irish like I do, I'd say they're only interested in catching a, a glimpse of Michael Caine and yeah. I, I getting him again, getting trying to get him on the late late show or trying to get him to to speak to the newspaper and, and getting him to say how much he loves Ireland and how he thinks Irish people are amazing and maybe he has relatives back in uh, the fucking arsehole of nowhere uh, that you know that come on the radio and say, oh, I met him, I met him, I met Mr. Caine. He sure he was wonderful, wasn't he? Great, and sure he was the spitting image of my third cousin. And so on and so forth. That is the only level. Of, I can't imagine there was like this is before social media uh, again. So there's not exactly going to be a, an orchestrated campaign of get Brits out or you know any of this shit. It's just no. I can't. I wouldn't imagine no, any controversy whatsoever. Well, it, I, I mean, you know, to be fair to Kane, I watched an interview with him there recently about filming in Kilmainham, and he was, to be fair to him, he was very aware of where they were and and what the place meant, and it really struck him. There's a scene in the film after the robbery goes ahead and is a success where uh, Mr. Bridger is walking down the, the steps and the whole prison is out chanting England. Now, all of those extras were Irish, you know, um, and this struck Kane as very, you know, it, it just struck him as an interesting thing. I mean, that, that you have all these Irish people chanting England, England in Kilmainham jail for the purposes of a movie, which he thought was, he thought, he thought was very interesting. Also, I mean, this is just a, an aside um, Peter Collins' wife is Irish, uh, Hazel Collins. And then she, again, she told a little story one time about her, her grandmother lived opposite Camille in jail. So when, back in the day, like when 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 uh, prisoners would be executed and so on, they wouldn't be treated with a whole lot of respect regard. Bodies would generally be left outside the prison to be collected by their by their families. Um, so the local women would go and they would try and clean, clean the bodies up before the families would see them. And that's so um, Hazel Collins and the, wife of the director of the Italian job, her grandmother was one of the people who would have gone and uh, helped to sort of um, help to clean up the body. So there's a huge resonance like there around. I, I smell a book, Michael. I smell a book. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. oh it's just going, oh, oh. get that no, body no, no. secret and go on. No, 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 no. Make no, that tea, make that tea, baby. 
just uh, look, I can't help myself. You know, we call, like this is this isn't meant to be that kind of podcast, you know. But sometimes I just can't help myself. I gotta go. I got. I gotta go. I just find history so interesting. I just can't stay away from it. So oh, I, spotted, I love it. I don't know. Did you spot anybody? I spotted Frank Kelly, Father Jack from Father Ted fame, was the prison guard, and I spotted David Kelly, of course, who is the priest stroke vicar at the at the funeral in the cemetery in Rathfarnham, isn't it? Crewe Cemetery. Crewe Cemetery, yeah. Outside, just on the outskirts, it's kind of South County Dublin. Um, where they filmed, where they filmed one bit. But look, anyway, that's the Irish connection. That's just really interesting to us because you know we're from there. Um, and, and I believe uh, you're going to sing a song for us now, Italian job, aren't you? I am right, yeah. <laughs> the self-preservation society. Get a bloom and move on. By the way, was the name of that song Get before. Bloom and move on. So very, just to wind this all up, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about it as being a hit or a flop. It was a big hit, in, as you said, in UK, Europe. Not so much in America. It had an awful poster of Kane dressed up as a mafia gangster or some kind of a thing for some reason. And a woman, a naked woman with a map painted on her back. He hated it. And it really didn't help. Um, it's very impractical. Know, you couldn't, you, how, would you be, how would you drive the car and know where you're going? Like, is she... She's yeah. going to freeze, first of all, and that's, that's, that's not okay. But also, I mean, you're going to get a creak in your neck. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 and not at all practical. I mean, she's going to be draped across you. It's going to, it's going to upset the person in the passenger side as well. Terrible yeah. stuff. This movie, as far as I can figure out, right? And maybe I'm a bit. We're just in between age wise, sort of to really know for sure. But I get the sense that this became a classic. This really became a classic in the nineties when you know blokes and football and birds and lad culture and capering kind of came back into fashion because like the the. The reviews, if you'll indulge me, uh, Stephen, for the moment, um, the reviews in the 60s were pretty mixed. Like the Times said it was a one song musical, said Kane and Coward gave muted performances. Can you believe Leonard Maltin and the, the Diana critics in the States I just said it was an average caper film with a truly bizarre ending. I actually think I think that Barry Norman, God rest his film soul, kind of got it right. He, he, he said that the Italian job decent movie that kind of got lost in all the other caper films there were so many of these kind of films out in the 60s that it just kind of got 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 lost a little bit and it wasn't until it came back it got a re got a couple of re-releases actually but it only when it came back in the 90s and the style and the whole lad culture thing and all the rest of it sort of gave it a gave it a new life and i mean i suppose it's such an iconic thing now i mean even the minis the minis themselves uh, you know, were part of the London 2012 opening ceremony, which I think it's fair to say Danny Boyle's work there kind of pretty much were, was like crystallizing British pop culture of the previous 50, 60 years. So to have an, an Italian job presence there kind of pretty much kind of pretty much puts it puts it where it is now in people's minds. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I'd say that res, that 90s resurgence really helped keep in people's minds or bring it back, uh, yeah. certainly as well. Uh, and of course, it spawned the god awful remake uh, with uh, yeah. Mark Wahlberg, Donald Sutherland, and, and Ed Norton, and Charlie's Theron. Um, I've never seen it. Is it? Is it? I mean, it's like it pays very little. I think the minis are the only thing that really that, that the only thing that's carried over um, uh, to the remake. Everything else is and the names. You know, Mark, Mark Wahlberg's character is called Charlie Croker, but that's essentially it. Um, and and straight away there, when you say when you say Mark Wahlberg plays charlie croker those two names don't go together and i think it goes back to this like there's something about the spirit of this movie and the spirit it comes across because of the way it's made and the way it's put together and mainly through kane really and there is and is this is i mean we will be very critical of this guy at times and we've already i mean 
we'll talk about it probably in the next episode. We're, the, la- the next movie will be his last movie of the 60s, and we might go through a little bit of it. We've already seen some terrible things, but there is something about Kane that is in this movie that just, there's a charisma about him. It's what you said earlier. It's that movie star. He is a star. You can see it in the Italian job. He is a star. He's just, he's, he is a star. Yep. I can't wait to see how he pisses it all away. <laughs> so this is, the, we, this is the trend. This is the trend. We've yeah. noticed already. Like not even, we're not even out of the, the, the first decade of his, of his uh, movie career. And already you're seeing the trend of uh, quality peak, uh, long trough of shit. Yeah. Like I'm, I, I finished the Italian. I enjoyed the taste. I, I enjoyed the taste of success so much. I I will not dine in it for another four fucking years. I enjoyed the Italian job so much. Like I was so happy at the end of it. I think it was because we had watched, as you said earlier, just so much rubbish in the last bunch of movies. I mean, there was times in the, like like the Megas and Deadfall. Like it's just, they were just such hard watches. But this like just made you happy. And part of it it's like it's like going. It's like when you're growing up as a kid and you couldn't afford to go away anywhere nice. So you go to the beach and you fuck it. There'd be I'd be pissing rain, cold wind. You go into the sea, you'd be forced to go by your parents, and you come out, you know, bluer than the fucking one of those fish that lives at the bottom of the Barianus Trench, you know. And then <laughs> you get a bit older, a bit of money comes in, you go overseas, and you're there, you know, France or Spain, whatever. You're sitting there, this mm. is what it's supposed to be like. This is what the experience is supposed to be. I'm supposed to like movies. Yeah. The water's supposed to be warm. You know? <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely right. So, Time for Marks of Kane, which of course is where we give Kane marks rather than the movie. Um, so what are you giving Kane in the Italian job? I got him 10. This is a 10 out of 10 Kane wow. for me. This is 10 out of 10. Yeah. Star power elevates the material. Um, no, at no point was I going, anybody else could have done this. This is really Kane's movie. This is this is this is him at his height, 10 out of 10. I cannot disagree with you. And I, you know what? I was slow to give a 10 because, you know, 10 is, you can't, there's nowhere else you can go. But really, I don't expect we're going to see anything better than this. We may see, we, hopefully we'll see things that match it, but there's nothing going to be better than the Italian job. So yeah, let's give him. This is the peak. This is peak Kane. This is it. God knows where it goes next. So next movie is his last movie of the 60s. It's The Battle of Britain. By the spring of 1940. Germany had virtually crushed every country on the continent. Now all that stood between them and the rest of the world was a handful of young British pilots in a handful of untried airplanes. Those magnificent men and their flying machines. Jocks away, give Jerry what not, and a hey nonny no, we'll be home by tea time for boiled ham and eggs. It's amazing, I was just transported back to the time of the World War One One. This is my understanding. They never talk. I'm sorry. I'm a bit vague about when this happens, but I, I was. Uh, the British never really talk about it. They're very kind no. of. Uh, it's not. It's just not spoken of, and I can appreciate that. Really, when something as terrible as a war happens, what it, it's best not to dwell on it. It's best to have you know, at the time, discuss it, have a bit of peace and reconciliation about, it, and then just move on and never discuss it again. Learn from your mistakes. So it's again. I'm looking forward to learning an awful lot of World War One. Uh, in terms of what happened and why it happened and who was involved um, uh, by a very unassuming movie called The Battle for, for Britain or of Britain? No, the, the, the Battle for Britain happened around Brexit. Britain. The Battle of Britain happened in World War. And I think so are they, are, they, are, they, are, they fight, are they fighting each other in it? I'm not sure. Again, you have to read a book. I think also uh, it's not World War. I'm not sure if it's World War 1-1 or World War II. I'm not sure. 
So again, hopefully all of this would be would be would be cleared up. Um, it's a bit of a blind spot from 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 a historical perspective. Uh, from yeah. Me, so, so let's go read a book. Let's go watch the movie. Everybody, if you want to come back next time, go on, go and dig out the Battle of Britain. It's out there. It's out there online. Uh, find, so, find out all about find out about this Adolf Hit, Hilter Hilter guy. Apparently, yeah. he's a, he's a key player in this. You know, do a bit of reading. Uh, really heavily Google his name um, and get that in your search history and. Uh, Get, a, get an in-depth knowledge of uh, World War Two. What was it? There's a first one. Okay, World War Two for next week. As usual, if you have any questions about the Battle of Britain or Adolf Hitler, um, make sure to hit us up on the socials, as they say, uh, at Marker K2. And we look forward to discussing um, what wonderful ideas he had, in, I guess, in the context of the Battle of Britain in next week's show. Thanks, lads. I'll feed us in. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. Uh, maybe leave a comment. Only nice ones, though. Mean comments will make Alfie cry, and no one wants to see that. The Marco Kane podcast is written, researched, and presented by Stephen Black and Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. Music is composed by Stephen Black. If you'd like to get in touch, you'll find us on Twitter at, at Mallow News and at Marco Kane 2 And if you enjoyed this episode, you'll find all the rest wherever you get your podcasts. The Marco Kane is a Mallow News 2 Cubes production. See you next time. Oh.